3: Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast,
0: Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you like this podcast, you will love my new anthology called Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids check it out and you'll hear from 49 authors about all sorts of things moms don't have time to do all the authors have been on this podcast also check out my tiktok at with Zivi and tracy my other podcast sex talk with zibby and tracy check out moms don't have time to write on medium and of course my new publishing company called Zivvy books and now back to our daily author interview site and a quick hello from some of my kids hi hi hello enjoy the show Julia Quinn is the author of The Wit and Wisdom of Bridgerton, Lady Whistledown's official guide, The Bridgertons. Number one, New York Times bestselling author Julia Quinn loves to dispel the myth that smart women don't read or write romance. And in 2001, she did so in grand fashion, appearing on the game show The Weakest Link and walking away with the $79,000 jackpot. She displayed a decided lack of knowledge about baseball, country music, and plush toys, but she is proud to say that she aced all things British and literary, answered all of her history and geography questions correctly, and knew that there was a Da Vinci long before there was a code. In the United States alone, there are over 10 million copies of her books in print. Globally, her books have been translated into 37 languages. She lives with her family in the Pacific Northwest. Hi, Julia. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss The Wit and Wisdom of Bridgerton, Lady Whistledown's official guide, your latest book. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh. It's my pleasure. Congratulations on the crazy success of Bridgerton and all your books and everything that you do. I am like beyond impressed at how many bestsellers. And I mean, it's just amazing. I can't even imagine what it's like to see now the show take off like this too. Are you, is, are you just, what is that like for you? It's, it's just, no, you probably can't imagine it. It's
1: as crazy as you're imagining. <laughs> I, I, I tell people that, I mean, I expected the show to do well. I didn't, I didn't never thought it was going to bomb or anything like that, but I didn't, I mean, I don't know how anybody could expect what ended up happening, which was just, I mean, it's just bonkers. It's just
0: absolutely bonkers and, and in the best possible way. Wow. Okay. I, I want to talk about this book, but I want to understand how you even got here. So you went to Harvard, you were going to be a a doctor, you went to med school and then what happened, right? Is that the story?
1: That's almost the story. Okay. So I was at Harvard. I was in my, let's see, I'm like, where do I start? So Between my junior and senior year at Harvard, I started writing a romance novel. I mean, it was just kind of like, it was what I like to read for fun. And so I thought I'd write it. I was working for Let's Go Europe, which is the travel guide at Harvard. And the previous year I'd been one of their writers who they sent me off to Greece, which was really kind of fun and interesting. And I say that with some irony because I don't speak Greek. And when I said to them, I don't speak Greek, they said, that's okay. We don't have anybody who speaks Greek. So you're as good as anyone else. Okay, great. It's all Greek to me. (laughs) Pretty much. I suppose I was hired to do the UK and Ireland book. And then they switched me off to Greece. And then the next year I stayed back in Cambridge and I sold the advertising, which was actually really kind of a fun time. And I was living with my boyfriend who was working on an ambulance reader, I married him later, but (laughs) anyway, so, so I wrote about four chapters of what actually ended up becoming my first novel. And and I said to myself, oh, I'm going to keep writing this when I'm in college. And and of course I didn't because I just had too many other things to do. And so then, you know, I had this big epiphany my senior year. I decided I want to be a doctor. I was taking this class in evolutionary biology, which was fabulous. I loved it. And it kind of reawakened this love of science in me. And I, I was the classic girl of the 80s who got brainwashed that STEM was for boys. And it was really, really sad because I had actually been, not, what's you'd think for a writer I would have better vocabulary recall. But I'd been identified actually as one of the top math and science female math and science students in the country in like junior high and high school. And I was like, oh, no, no, that's not me. I don't want to. So I didn't do any of that stuff. And so I I had this reawakening love of science. I decided I'm going to be a doctor. And I think this came about in part because I knew how to apply to school, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I I didn't know how to get a job, but I knew how to apply to school. So I thought, okay, well, you know, there's <laughs> what is there? There's there's law school, there's med school, there's business school. And med school seemed like a good thing, so I decided I, I was going to do that. And I didn't have the 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 prerequisites, so I had to go and do all those later. And so now I had about two years after college in which I was taking classes half time, but I did not. I, you can't hold down a regular job, so I said, okay, well, I'm going to finish writing my novel. So. I was writing my novel. I was working part-time in, you know, jobs that didn't require too much brain power. And I was taking my med school, my pre-med classes and I finished my book and I, I, you know, went out, got an agent and I ended up selling the book the same month I got into medical school. And that was kind of crazy. And I ended up deferring because I just thought, you know, I just sold a book. I can't, it's too exciting. And I knew, you know, once you get going in medical school, that's it. You're, you're, you know, that's your road for a really long time. So I deferred and then I deferred again. And meanwhile, my boyfriend went, so I'm living with a med student. And then I had what I call my mid twenties crisis, which was all of a sudden, all my friends were going to graduate school. All I think was I'm not qualified to do anything. If this writing thing doesn't work out, which is, ridiculous. I'd already had three books published. So I'm, I'm basically living the dream, right? Everybody wants to publish a book. And yet I'm freaking out because, because I haven't been to graduate school. And I went, this is like in August. I still can't believe they did this, but I went back to the people at Yale, which was where I had gotten into med school and, and deferred. And I begged them to take me back. And literally with days to spare before the the school year started, they took me back. And so I said, what I did was I got on the longest highway with the shortest on-ramp because, you know, my on-ramp to med school was really short, but it went on forever. And so I went to med school for about two, two and a half months before I realized it wasn't the right thing. And I withdrew. And so now, you know, this sounds like if I could sound very, very arch and whatever, I can say I'm, I'm a Harvard grad and a Yale dropout. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure what that means, but, and and I haven't looked back and, and, you know, I tell people I'm married to a doctor, so I know exactly
0: what I'm missing and boy, do I think I made the right choice. Wow. I could actually, by the way, say I almost could have said the same thing, except I went to Yale undergrad and I almost dropped out of Harvard business school. In fact, I went to the people and I was like, I'm dropping out. I'm done. See you later. And they convinced me to stay, but I was out of there. Wow. So we're almost like these psychic twins. You know what's interesting is when I went to the Dean
1: and went through my reasons for not wanting to stay, he actually said to me every time every year this time somebody comes to me like you, and this is the very first time somebody's come to me and laid out why they don't think it's right for them, and I've thought you've really thought this through. I think you're right and so he didn't try to convince me to stay he he said i think and and here's the best part he said to me. Oh, what a lovely man. He said, I don't think we need to charge you any tuition for your time here. No way. Yeah. So, so they ended up never charging me. In fact,
0: they just paid you to leave. They were like, you know what? If you could just get away from here, we'll just hand you this money and the interest from it that we made. <laughs>
1: yeah, no, that would be nice. That would be really nice. But no, I did, but they didn't charge me. And I did put him, his name was Dean Gifford, and I did put him in a book, or just his name. But so Dean Gifford is in How to Marry Marquis. You can see his name in there. That was my thanks. Because I, I remember actually, you know, when I was debating, should I stay, should I go, looking in the Yale handbook very specifically, like, wait a minute, at what point am I on the hook for an entire year's tuition here? And so, you know, I was at this point, I was like, oh, you know, if you're going to go, you need to go now. Cause if you wait next week, it's going to be like another $5,000 or something. So there wow. is that, but you know, we're still paying off my husband's med school loan. So there, you know, who knows how long it would have taken.
0: Oh my gosh. Well, at least I feel like anybody coming to your house has some sort of you know, medical, I feel like anybody who comes to you guys, they'll be fine, right?
1: (laughs) Not because of me. I mean, I can help you out, like if you need a Band-Aid or something, but, you know, my husband is a, and I do feel the need to point this out in this day and age, he is a board certified medical doctor in the field of infectious diseases with about 20 years practice. And I do feel the need to say this fully because there seems to be such a disdain for people who have expertise in their field these days. And so I'm often like quoting him saying, no, your internet search is not the same as, you know, my husband's, I don't know, 25, 30 years in this field of infectious disease. So it's, it's
0: been a very interesting time to be an infectious disease family. I bet. I bet. Wow. Must be a lot of stories there as well. Oh my goodness. Yes. Another book, perhaps. (laughs) For him to write, I think for him to write. I think it's so interesting that despite writing three books, you are already feeling bad about yourself somehow, no matter how many books people write, there's still some lingering thing. Like you should be doing something else or is this enough? Or will this go anywhere or whatever? Like, when you did know, you feel like you could stop that or have you? Oh, I stopped that. Definitely. Okay, Good. Phew. All right. I am not. Yeah. You know, I don't,
1: I'm not, I don't feel like, Oh, my books are perfect. I'm the best writer there ever was, but I, I don't have imposter syndrome anymore. So that, I mean, I don't, ever really did have imposter syndrome with this. I always felt good about my writing and I always felt like I deserved to be published and and all that stuff. And I didn't expect everybody to love it. I mean, so I didn't have unrealistic expectations. So I think maybe that helps, but I think that was just this, yeah, I don't know what it was. It wasn't about the writing. It was more just about this, you know, what society tell, told me I was supposed to be doing at that time in my life. And, you know, you see what your peers are doing and, you know, and I was living in New Haven where I think I was possibly one of the only 20 something people, not who was, wasn't a student, you know, I'd go somewhere and be like, Oh, where are you studying? And be like, nothing. Like, I had a job. I mean, that's what it is to be the spouse of a graduate student in a college town. Really everybody is, you know, studying something except for you. And yeah, so it was just a kind of a weird, time. And I think I just, you know, it's kind of emotional upheaval. And then I came out of it and and I feel pretty good about my choices. Good. Yeah. I think
0: you've proven that this is a good field. I mean... (laughs) it worked for me. It worked for you. (laughs) So why, after all the books, did you write the wit and collect, I should say, the wit and wisdom of Bridgerton and collect all the quotes and make this beautiful guide, which is, you know, gorgeous and very giftable and amazing. A to Z, I like this quote. I simply refuse to deal with idiots. It has cut my social obligations in half. I love that.
1: Just wouldn't see. that be nice for all of us? Okay. Well, I mean, to be completely honest, it was suggested to me. And, you know, we wouldn't have this gorgeous collection if we didn't have the television show and suddenly this big market for it. But, you know, it just seemed like a nice idea. With you know, Suddenly there were so many new readers and also people who watch the shows but wanted a taste of who the characters books. And so, you know, it was just suggested and I thought, okay, I'll run with it. And it was really fun actually. You know, the, I wrote these books a long time ago. The very, the first book, the Duke and I, I figured out I would have written in 1998. Yeah. So my book is old enough to legally drink. And
0: (laughs) that's when I graduated from college. I, your book and i were you know out in the world at the same time here okay yeah
1: so so you can you can relate to exactly how old it is and i'm not i i think most writers don't go back and reread their books very often i mean i i don't and for me a big part of it is that the way that I write, I edit as I go along. Now now I'm like, I realize this is a podcast, but I'm actually making motions about that show, like my editing process, these little loops constantly looping back. But what happens is that by the end of it, I've read the book maybe a hundred times. I mean, it's just, And I don't want to read it again, you know. And and I remember talking to somebody in publicity saying, "Like, you need Julie, you need to stop saying this," because I'm like, "Oh my god, (laughs) it's so predictable." But I think it's so boring. And they're like, "Stop saying that about your book." (laughs) But the point is, if you've read something a hundred times, it it seems pretty predictable, right? You know. And so I don't want to read it again. So it's been a long, long time before I'd done this, and I I didn't do a close reread, but I I did, I guess, a, a fairly thorough skim of all the books. I mean, we did have someone who helped with, you know, did a preliminary, she went through the books to find what she thought were really quotable quotes. But, you know, in the end, it has to be me. And so I did a skim and I I also, I cheated a little, although I guess some would call it cheating. Some would call it very clever research. And I went to Goodreads where people like put their favorite quotes in and I was able to find some good quotes that way. Although then you have to go back and find them in the books and make sure that they actually existed. But it was fun. You know, it's fun because sometimes you'd go through and you'd think that's not bad. You know, I did that. You know, I mean, a lot of these quotes, I have no recollection of writing that sentence. And then some of them were quite memorable to me. Like I did remember them very well. And so I keep looking off at the I have the book here too. And it was fun. And, and the other thing that was very different about it was that I am not a very visual writer. So when I, I don't, Picture the scenes the way I think some people think I do. And I don't picture the characters very clearly. I mean, I describe them, oh, this person has this color hair and he's got that color eyes, but I don't have a very sharp image of it. And it's different now that we've had the show because now I'm rereading this stuff and I see the actors. And so it's a very different experience for me to actually have these clear images of what the characters look like. And I think that's a testament to the excellent acting and, and especially to the fabulous casting director. Cause she did an amazing job. So, you know, I, I think I say this in the intro, it doesn't matter that, you know, in, in the book, Simon had blue eyes. You know, when I'm reading the Simon stuff now I see Reggae jean Page who was absolutely amazing. And then the woman who plays Eloise Claudia Jesse, she puts an incredible physicality into the way she p- does that role, you know, she's always, you know, when she walks, it's like her head's like a couple inches ahead of the rest of her. Like she just has to get where she's going. And the I see these things. I see her movements as I'm reading her stuff. And so it was really a fascinating
0: exercise for me in an almost intellectual sense as well. Wow. No, I loved how you said like, yes, thank you to the show. Cause now I actually have a picture of what they look like in my head. <laughs> That's great.
2: This is somewhat off topic,
0: but I saw on your website that you had started a foundation in honor of your father because of his loss a year ago. What can you tell me about that?
1: Yes, it was actually earlier this year. My father and my sister were killed in a automobile crash that was caused by a drunk driver and then also a truck that didn't properly secure its load. So a truck, I'm told canvas bags flew off the back of a truck. And my father's car and another car, I don't know whether they stopped or just slowed down a lot, but they, they did. And then there was a man driving a very large pickup truck who was three times over the legal limit for alcohol. He told the police he'd been drinking for two days straight, slammed into the back of my father's car, which then slammed into the car in front of it, killing my father and my sister, critically, critically injuring my brother-in-law, who's still hospitalized. This was five months ago and also badly injuring my stepmother who can no longer live independently. So this was obviously something pretty, I don't even know how to explain it. I mean, it's just, it's nothing I've ever gone through in my life. It's it's easily the worst thing that ever happened in my life. And somebody described it, you know, as as my the year of loss and abundance, because on the one hand, so many incredible things were happening in my life because of Bridgerton. And then on the other hand, You know, I lost two people very close to me in the blink of an eye and I've been trying to, well, you can't make sense of it. So I think making sense of it isn't the right word, but I've been trying to find ways to heal and it's tough because you've got two people and there's two very separate things. And so you can think about, I can think about my dad and think, okay, you know, yeah, my dad was perfectly healthy and he probably had another decade at least, but he's 77, he was 77 and, you know. I got to have my father for 51 years and the kids down the block who are teenagers lost their dad last year to pancreatic cancer and so I'm very fortunate you know but but that argument doesn't work when your sister is 37 so I've been finding different ways for each of them to mourn for my sister it has been working we had been working on a book together a graphic novel which is coming out next year called Miss Butterworth and the Mad Baron and so for her I've been trying to honor her by making sure that that continues in the best possible manner. It was almost done. So there's stuff to do. And then with my dad, we created not a foundation, but a scholarship in his name, or we're working towards the creation of a scholarship in his name at the Summer Science Program, which is a program, simple exactly what it sounds like, it's a summer science program. And he had actually been a participant in 1960 in the second year of its existence and at the time it was just for boys of course and it was for like the best science students in the state of California and he got to go and it just opened his eyes in a huge way he came from what was then a very small town in California it's now actually a fairly large city but you know and you know somebody there was suggesting them you know why don't you consider applying to Harvard you know nobody in his high school had ever even left the state to go to college and so it was a really big deal and it kind of just opened his world and then And at the time they did, like it was astrophysics and they actually had like a computer they were working on. And later in, I think it was probably the early nineties, he realized that the program was floundering and along with some other alums, he took it over and, and saved it. And so he worked on it, was on the board of directors for years. And so my family and I are establishing scholarships that, that will provide full financial aid for one student per year. And then we also insisted there has to be a Kotler prize. His, his le- last name's Kotler for the student who in the eyes of the faculty shows the most exuberance and love of learning because my dad was nothing if not exuberant. He was really one of a kind. So if anybody would like to contribute to this, if you go to my homepage on my website, which is juliaquinn.com, just scroll down to the bottom. There's information on it. But we are forming this scholarship to just continue his love of education. And that's been something which has been very healing for me to work on something positive at an, in, within something of such loss.
0: I'm so sorry to hear that story. I am just, my heart is breaks when I heard it and I love that you have found a way to make meaning of it because there's not much else you can do with loss, right? Aside from just like get up every day and then like try to find something to ground you in The chaos of it, I guess, but
1: you know, you start to realize that so many of these sayings and aphorisms become that way for a reason. Everyone's like, you know, the only way out is through, and you know, it seems trite, but it's trite because it's true. You have to just get up each day, and 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 I I tell people I'm not. I'm not in denial and I'm not in disbelief. I'm in the bewilderment stage of grief, I think. And I don't know why nobody writes about the bewilderment stage of grief, but that's what it is. It's not, it's not any of the things that, you know, what's her name? Elizabeth Kubler-Ross said, it's, I'm just sort of, it's not like, I believe it. I just still don't understand it. It's like, how, how did, how did this happen? How, you know, and you all of a sudden you're like, how, how does somebody die in an instant? I I, I don't, I don't know. And I just, yeah, I, <sighs> And it's one of those things where you just say, like, I, I I don't I don't even know what to say about it. It's just heartbreaking, really.
0: I had this moment. I lost my best friend on 9-11 and I was going through all her stuff. She was my roommate in college and after college. And I had this moment in her basement of her parents' home as we were unpacking all the clothes that we had first packed up from her house. And then eventually they asked me to go down and deal with all the clothes because they couldn't go down there. And I remember just like sitting in the basement on my knees one day and pulling out this sweater, and there was this like one long strand of her hair. And I was just like, how, how is this the only thing left? How, how can this be? I don't understand. It's like too much for our brains. I don't know. Anyway. So I I totally understand bewilderment. It's like confusion and all of that. And anyway, I'm so sorry for your loss. And thank you. I, you know, I've reached the point now where I, I, I can talk about it. Obviously I,
1: talking about it now, but it's hard. And so I guess, you know, if, if there's any, you know, since, since I suddenly have this way to talk to so many people through you, I guess, just to say, you know, to everybody who's going through some kind of losses, be kind to yourself. And, you know, and I'm learning that your brain does what it needs to do to help you through your grief. And like, for me, my brain seems to be sequencing the grief, you know, having lost two people at once it's my brain's working on grieving my father more than my sister and and that will come, you know, and, and, but I refuse to feel guilty about the fact that, you know, my grieving is more focused on one of the two people right now. It doesn't mean I didn't love the other one. It just means that my brain is protecting me and saying, look, this, this is how you're going to get through
0: this without hurting more than you can handle. Yeah. The brain does kick in. I have this trauma therapist I know well who's writing a book for Zippy Books, and she's always citing all these statistics and saying, like, no, that is your brain's defense. Like, that is what happens. That is what happens in trauma, and you will get through that. Anyway, her name's Megan Riordan Jarvis. She's amazing. And anyway, she's taught me so much about what the brain actually does that I kind of wish I had known. They should teach that in school because, like, the one thing everyone's going to experience is loss, right? We're not all going to need chemistry or You know, I also took evolutionary biology, found it fascinating, but like, it has not served me well. Let me just say in my (laughs) day-to-day life, if I had taken a class and like, not that there's anything you could really learn because you have to go through it and everybody is so unique and how they experience loss, but yes. Well,
1: I, you know, I think there's a class now, I thought I read there's a class at Yale now, which is the most popular class on campus about something about happiness. Okay.
0: Yeah. I think there was some positive psychology stuff. I don't know. Happiness. I'll have to look it up. Yeah. Of course.
1: Like I bring it up and can remember nothing more about it, except that it it was like, it was offered and like everybody wanted to take it because it was just something about, yeah, this is the typical, like, you know, I have like a jeopardy knowledge of everything. Like I could answer a question on jeopardy, but not go any deeper into anything. So that's, that's pretty much my level. I
0: saw you were like some crazy winner on the weakest link. Oh, I was, I was, Oh, that was, that was
1: amazing. Okay. We're getting back to happier things. Now that was one of life's most surreal and fabulous moments is yes. I I won on the weakest link.
0: That's so cool. That's a fantasy is being on one of those shows and I can't believe, and you just nailed it. That's amazing.
1: Yeah. And the funny thing is, you know, it helped me get my mortgage for my first. (laughs) Oh my gosh. They were, I still can't, I mean, my, no, actually, no, my, my second house, the one, I'm, the one I'm standing in right now, I, it was one of those things, like, I still can't believe they lent us the money for it. And, you know, later <laughs> they said to us, they're like, oh my gosh, you guys were like the worst. We we use you as a teaching case now. Cause you had everything. You had student loans, you had the self-employed <laughs> writer, you had game showers. <laughs> 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 and, was, and they said, they felt better about us knowing because the game show earnings were coming in like a month after we closed on the house. And they're just like, you're using everything for the house. We felt better knowing that, you know, this money was coming in, but yes. So I have the weakest link
0: to thank for my. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Oh my gosh. What a life. Crazy. Okay. So aside from getting back to the book world for a minute, aside no, don't say sorry. I find this super interesting. This is like, I mean, there's Nothing more interesting than like talking and hearing somebody's story, but just from like a factual thing to close this up or whatever. Okay. What do you have aside from your graphic novel, which is amazing you're doing? What do you have more? What are the, what's on the book horizon and anything? I got to figure that out.
1: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I, 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 I I was telling you before we started that I just got back from Maui, which was wonderful. My husband had a conference there. And so I tagged along, which is great. My conferences are never in places like (laughs) that. Mine are in like Dallas in July. And, you know, and I'm not dissing Dallas in July, you know. Okay. So we were in Maui and I thought, I was like, I'm going to figure out everything about my next book. No, No, I'm still... I mean, I have some ideas, but I've been taking a an extended break to, you know, just there's been a lot of other stuff to do work-wise because of Bridgerton, and then with the pandemic, I really wanted to focus a little bit more in supporting my family, especially since you know, as I mentioned, my husband is a, a doctor of infectious diseases, so you know, we we have been hit by this pandemic pretty hard in our family, not through our sickness, but through, you know, the toll that this has taken on our healthcare. Front line, you know, he's done. I think by this point, probably 150 interviews. He's he's very articulate. He's a very good speaker. And you know, I think once the local news finds a doctor who can speak very well in front of a camera, they just they they do not let go. And so, in fact, he's done so many news stories with this one reporter we love named Tammy Mutasa. That when he did one for someone else, we're like, you're cheating on Tammy. It's not fair to Tammy. So I spent just a lot of time with that and with Bridgette. And then, of course, you know, this terrible car crash. In my family and so i just really honestly haven't
0: been writing but i need to get back into it you don't need to get back into it and you're doing well it. you know legally i do
1: oh, okay all right <laughs> well i can't <laughs> i have signed some contracts but I, you know I, I am in a
0: position where i can move at my own pace which is nice well i think you should write some essays about the grief If you, I don't know if you write essays or whatever, but if you need a place, I have this mom's no time to write column, but even just for you, I feel like you need to write about that stuff. Get it out of your mind onto the page. I don't
1: know. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. I'm not much of an essayist. Actually, I did write a commencement speech this year. I gave the commencement address at my high school, which was crazy, which I guess is a little bit like writing essays. And that was hard. What part of the world did you go to high school in California? No, no. I went to boarding school. So this was back at, you know, my very rural out of the way boarding school in Connecticut. And it was actually, it was, it was a wonderful experience to go back and speak and, you know, somebody told me when I was there that they had just gone to a speech and I did better than the governor. So that was nice. They're like, you were
0: way funnier than the governor, but I'm not surprised. I think that's great. (laughs) I beat the governor. My son is tucked away at the moment in a boarding school in Massachusetts. So I am familiar with that life. Yes. Well, even if not for publication, it might be helpful. I'm just throwing it out for things that have helped me in the past. So anyway. That's possible. Or you get tons of advice, but that's my that's my own advice. <laughs> okay. Last question. What advice would you give to aspiring authors?
1: Oh, well, two things really. One is try to find some sort of organization that you know, supports your work. It is relevant to your work. Because there's just a lot lot of resources out there. There are a lot of resources out there. And I'm not necessarily the best person to, to ask about that because I sold my first book like right at the dawn of the internet age. So I didn't, I don't even like know how to find this stuff on the internet because I never had to. But there are a lot of great writers groups, writers organizations, and that can help, you know, if your aim is to publish that can really help you. The, these days, a lot of writers do self-publish. And when I was starting out, that we kind of poo-pooed that. I mean, it was really vanity publishing then. Nowadays, it's a vibrant, incredible route. I know a lot of authors who self-publish who do amazingly well, you know, and they have a lot of control and they really like it. So there are organizations and groups that can help you learn about that too. The other thing I tell people is that if you want to write a book, unfortunately, you have to actually write the book. There isn't another way to do it. And I was telling people, if I could have figured out another way, I would have, trust me, I would have figured it out. You have to sit your butt in the chair and you have to write it. Or or in my case, I'm at my standing desk here, which is actually a treadmill desk. Ooh. Yes, I love this. I go between working my treadmill desk and working at a Starbucks,
0: although I can't really work at the Starbucks right now. So that's why I'm not writing. I can't go to my Starbucks. How often do you actually turn on the treadmill? Because I feel like I would just stand on it. Oh, all the time. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. But also because I do this thing, a little plug for something
1: else, I do this thing called Step Bet, which is this great app where you actually bet real money that you're going to make your stepping goal every day. And it's actually... <laughs> I got totally into it and was looking up the company and then realized the guy who runs it lived like one room down from me, my freshman year in college. But yeah, so you put like $40 down and it goes into this pool and then you have to make these step goals every week. And if, you know, you miss one week, you're out. There's no second chances. And then at the end of the the, the six weeks, whatever's left in the pool gets divided among the winners. And I'm averaging 20% returns on my money, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's better than what I'm getting from the bank. And my kids are like, mom, you have a gambling problem. I'm like, okay. It's not a gambling problem. If you completely control the outcome, but it's great because I'm just like, you know, no way am I going to lose $40 because I didn't take, you know, the amount of steps I, you know, so I'll be in there, you know, so I get on my treadmill and as I'm paying the bills, I, I don't write so much while the treadmill's on, but like, I take care of everything else, the email, the bills, everything. And I'm walking and you can totally do it. If you can walk, and talk on the phone at the same time, you can walk and type
0: on your computer at the same time. I promise you. I have never tried that. I am inspired to do so now.
1: You should, because, I mean, I think people think of treadmills like, you know, running. No, you're not running. You're just walking at a normal yeah. pace. So it's not, you absolutely can do it. And I did all this research on it. I know I tend to digress a lot as you, as I'm sure you've learned, but there's something called NEAT, which is non-exercise exercise aerobic thermogenesis, which is basically the mood, the, the aerobic energy, you know, that your body produces or uses whatever, not through like formal exercise. So not when you're breathing hard, whatever. And there've been a lot of studies that say that if you can up that, it's actually for health benefits, you know, overall is incredible. So, you know, maybe not necessarily for, you know, if you're looking to lose weight or tone or whatever, but for your overall health benefits in life to add to that, is just wonderful. So I've been, you
0: know, I end up walking, you know, five, seven miles a day some days because I'm over here paying my bills and I'm walking and it's terrific. Is there a specific model? I really think I might get this now. I sit at my desk all day. I'm so like sedentary, and I used to be so active. This is great. I have, you know, I I'm on like a, a lifespan. All right, writing it down.
1: Well, you know, you know, a plug for my website. I believe this is in the FAQ of my website. Oh, is it? Okay, I'm sorry. Okay. No, that's okay. Let's
0: see, now I'm being, I'm, I'm getting back. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Get through the Please visit head. my website at <laughs> Okay. <laughs> no, but I, I'm not sure they make this model anymore, but. All right, I'm going to do it. Maybe that'll be my new year's resolution. Anyway, I've kept you like way be- longer than I should on this podcast. And you've spent like so much time with me today. And so I feel like I need to. <laughs> Let you go back to your That is okay. No, but I I'm truly like I I'm in total I have drunk the Kool-Aid on the the
1: treadmill desk. So I, I will talk about it for ages. Like like I want you to get a treadmill desk now because I think it will
0: I don't know if, it won't change your life, but it will make you much less sanitary. That would be great. Yeah, that's a problem. I love solutions to problems that you can implement immediately.
1: That's All right, again, I forget I'm on a podcast. I feel like I one of those like captions saying like image, she makes thumbs up. <laughs>
0: Double thumbs up! Double thumbs up! Julia, thank you. This has been so great. Thank you. I've had the best time, and thank you for sharing all that stuff. And you know, I'll be thinking. I feel of like I feel like I have a new friend. You do. I, I love it. All right. Well, Seattle is on my wish list of places to go because I've accumulated some new friends, and one of my teammates works there, and so it's on my wish list for the next year. So I'll let you know if I ever come that way, and if you're in New York, let me know. I am, I am frequently, at least near New York. So
1: yes, I will let you know.
0: All right. Thank you. Have a great Thanks. day. You okay. too. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books.